Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so usually during my preaching, I like to go broad and talk about uh, big ideas or to go kind of verse by verse through a lesson and talk about all the theology and the wonderful lessons we can glean from God's Word. Today I'm not doing that though. Today I'm, we're going to go deep. And we're going to go deep on just two verses today. And I'm going to talk about these two verses for the whole time I preach today. So hopefully you can come with me into this sort of deep dive into God's Word. Romans chapter 12, our epistle reading today, is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Now, Rome was an interesting church because it was, number one, in the sort of center of the biggest and most powerful and important city in the, in the world or in the modern uh, Western world at the time. And it was a church that was started there. It was a very young church, very uh, spiritually uh, immature and young and developing. And there was, it was also a very, uh, a very diverse church. There was a lot of different ethnic backgrounds, a lot of different cultural heritages that were all in the Christian church at the time. So Paul is writing with this in mind to a church that's young and diverse and at the center of a lot going on in the world during his time. Now, Paul has not actually been to the church in Rome yet, so he's sending this letter, the Roman, what we call Romans, to the church in Rome to kind of lay the groundwork for his eventual coming, his arrival. And he, he establishes a couple of things right off the bat. He says that he's Paul, he wants to establish his authority by the name of God as a, a pastor, as a missionary. He wants to establish some basic principles of Christian unity and fellowship. He wants to establish some core doctrines of the church, like justification and faith and, and things like that. And so he establishes those in the first several chapters, and then he just progressively builds on it. He sets in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, this kind of foundation for an argument that he's now going to put forth in Romans chapter 12. So there's a sort of shift into a new mode or mentality of thinking now for the Roman church that Paul is writing to. It's quite interesting, I think, that the church in Rome found itself at the middle and we sitting here today as 21st century Americans sort of find ourselves at the sort of center of a lot of things very similarly to the Roman church. But we'll talk about that in just a minute. So he writes this, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so today, we're going to talk about worship. As we continue in this series, you are what you worship. Today's emphasis is on worship that transforms, because worship will change you. It will. That's what it's kind of designed by God to do. Worship is to take you from a place that you are to a place that you will be, to a person that you were, to a person that you can be. And that's what worship's transform, transformative power does to us. It changes us. So let's begin by looking at, at verse 1 that I just read. I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God, because this is true and proper worship. So we should probably find out what exactly this means, this living sacrifice thing. I don't know how many of you guys are thinking about this, but this makes my mind go to the Old Testament sacrificial system where they took a lamb and they killed it and sprinkled its blood on the altar or they took two turtle doves and killed it and burned it on top of the altar. And I'm thinking, Paul's saying, you guys are supposed to be sacrifices. And I'm going, I don't like that, Paul. Uh, But at least he says, be living sacrifices. So that's good, right? It makes us think of that Old Testament system of sacrifice. That sacrifice was how the people of Israel were called to atone for their sins and to offer praise to God. And so here Paul is saying, offer yourselves as sacrifices. And without context, you might, all, you might think, wow, I didn't realize that Paul was all about, you know, atoning for your own sin by your own sacrificial nature. And indeed, many false preachers have, have, have taught this Uh, this lesson falsely to try and get you to merit your own salvation. And we're not, there are 11 chapters before this of Romans where Paul explicitly states that it has nothing to do with you, it's all about Christ, then we might think that as well. But I think what Paul is doing here is he's established that there is a very strong precedent for us honoring the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world and the lamb that was slain, Jesus. And because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and gave his life up as an offering, as a sacrifice, so that you could be purchased and won back and redeemed by God, because of what Jesus has done, now you also, in imitation of him, ought to give your lives as a sacrifice as well. So what does it mean? That's a really good question. Let's ask that. What does it look like? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? He asks this question and it begs an answer. And fortunately for us, Paul doesn't make us wait around for the answer. He does that sometimes, but not here. In verse 2, he writes these words. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we see three things. Three things is what it is that makes us a living sacrifice. First, don't conform to the world. Second, be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And then third, being able to discern the will of God. Being able to see what his plan is ahead of you. Those are three things that it takes to be a living sacrifice. So we've stepped a step down in digging deep. Now we're going to go a step deeper and dig even deeper. We're going to look at each of these three points of being a living sacrifice and talk about what it means so we can have an understanding of what Paul is driving at in these two verses. So the first one, do not conform yourselves to the patterns of this world. The world has a certain way that it operates, and it wants people in the world to conform to that pattern, that way of life, that worldview. And you'll remember Paul is writing to the church in Rome, the center of the contemporary world, the ancient world at that time. It was the center of economics, it was the center of politics, military stuff, technologies, trade, you name it. 
It all happened in Rome. Even religion happened in Rome. Rome was the center of worldliness in about every way you can imagine. And he's writing to this church and saying, you guys are right at the center of this place that really, really wants you to conform to its way of doing life. Don't do it. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. The pattern that tries to convince you that the the path that you should take is one that strives after success, that strives after wealth and power and fame and glory. Don't conform to that way of life. But instead, find the other way. Don't conform to that way. Be conformed to God's way. And so we, as 21st century American Christians, find ourselves, perhaps uniquely, in a very similar circumstance to the church in Rome. We're the church in, you could say, kind of the new Rome, America, the place where there is, uh, we may not be first place in everything, but we're first place when you bring it all and sum it all up, right? We are the place where there is freedom to live your life in a certain way. There's economic well-being here. There's comfort and relative ease in life here. There's, there's uh, ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and succeed here. There's the ability to find fame and prestige here. And, and all of the world tries around us is kind of designed to bring us all along and shuffle us into a line to conform to the way that the world works. We live in a very worldly place, a place that wants, to, wants us to conform to the world's way of doing things here. And Paul's message for us, as it was for the Roman church, is don't do it. Don't be conformed to the way of the world. Well, worship, which is what we're talking about today, worship does just that. It helps us to not conform to the ways of the world, but to be set apart to be different, to act differently, to speak differently, think differently, act differently, and be different. So I want to ask this question to you all in your places of work. I was going to say school, but I don't think we have any kids here, right? So we've got a couple of it. In your school, in in your neighborhoods, wherever you are, think about that question. Are you set apart? Do people notice that you're different? Will they look at you and know you are a Christian? Will they see what you do and what you say and how you act and the way you are and say, that person is different? Now, different can be bad or different, in this instance, can actually be really good. Not just for you, but for the world. The world needs Christians to be different. And we certainly need to be different, too, so that we can be, as we'll talk in a minute, transformed by God. So are you living your life as one set apart? I can tell you right now the answer is yes, because you're sitting here today. And the world is not doing that right now. It's quarter to noon on a Sunday. A lot of people right now are not where you are but are out doing other things, enjoying their free time on the weekends. But you are here. You are here, my hope is, because you realize that being set apart, being different, 
being here in worship is a blessing to you and is also honoring to God. And so this is why we are called not to be conformed to the way of the world. The way of the world will tell you you work hard during the week, you should relax and maybe even party hard on the weekends. That's not the way Christians are called to live our lives. We're called to be set apart, to look differently, and worship does that. Not just worship on Sunday either, but we come here to learn that rhythm, that pattern of nonconformity to the world's standards so that we can carry the pattern we learn in here out into the world. We can learn selflessness. We can learn to deny our own desires and be conformed into the image of Christ. So let me talk an example about, uh, from the Bible about a person who does this. Daniel. He is living in, in exile. He's a servant of the king and a really good one at that. That's an important lesson. When, when you look different, it doesn't mean that you, are, that you are not still useful to the world. Daniel was extremely useful to the king and to those who lived in the nation where he served. He was very good and diligent in his work. But he was different, and everybody knew that. So when the king told Daniel and told the whole kingdom, you cannot pray to anyone other than me, Daniel said, sort of in the same vein as what the apostles said after Jesus' resurrection, you must decide who we should obey, God or man. And he said, I'm going to obey God. And so he prayed, and the servants of the king who were conspiring against him turned him in, and they threw him in the lion's den. You all know how the rest of that story goes. That's not the only story like this, though. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's good friends, when they're called to bow down before an altar, before a statue, before a, uh, an idol, they refuse to do it. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. They're fine. Daniel's fine. God defends them. Whenever it's time for them to eat the king's food, they refuse because they're not going to eat food sacrificed to false idols. They are set apart. They are different. They're in the world, but not of the world. That's what Paul is exhorting us to do here. So let's go to the next one now. The next one, after we've been, we've rejected being conformed to the ways of this world, we come in and we say, but we are now transformed. So in the ways of the world, it tries to make us conform to that, but our calling instead is not to conform, but to be transformed, okay? So I want you to think about that dynamic. It's a little bit different. God is calling us to be transformed by the renewing of our, our minds. You'll notice first and foremost, this is, grammatically speaking, not an active verb, but a passive verb, right? It's something that's happening to you. You are not transforming yourselves by the renewing of your mind, which you accomplish. You are being transformed, and Paul doesn't state explicitly who's the one doing the transforming, but we all know, right? It's God, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms, who sanctifies, who changes us. So be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what does this look like in your daily living? Well, I like to think of it this way. It's, it's kind of like when you worship when you're here in this place and when you're worshiping out in the world, 
and, and you're living your life in a certain way that's set, that's set apart by God, God is using those opportunities to take like a little teeny chisel and knock a part of you off. Knock a part of that old Adam within you. Knock it off of you. And then he takes a bit of his new man, which is recreated in the image of Christ, and he plugs it in right where that old piece was taken off. Not enough to notice a grand transformation all at once, but certainly a thousand of those little chisel marks and a thousand little trans, you know, God transplants or Christ transplants into you, eventually you start to see this transformation take place. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not, I think we are in such a big rush to be transformed. We see things in ourselves and we say, God, make that thing about me stop. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm tired of it and I want to be different. God doesn't operate that way, though. God operates through those little chisel marks. And when we think about it, we, we kind of love the idea of transformation. If you went to Barnes & Noble, you'd see an entire shelf filled with self-help books. We have an entire day in our contemporary culture dedicated to this process of transformation. It's January 1st. People's New Year's resolutions, right? Last year I was this way. This year I want to be this way. How's that working out for you guys? We're not really great at that. I've seen some people do a good job in those transformations, those, those New Year's resolutions, but for most of us when we say, I want to make this change, we try to do so in a miraculous way, in a, in a profound overnight kind of transformative way, and that just doesn't work. That doesn't usually work. Sometimes it does. But usually God is doing something a little different. This reminds me a little bit of a movie from the 80s. There was a high school kid who went to a new school, and he was being picked on by some bullies. And he was kind of in a bad way and went and talked with an older guy uh, that he had met and decided to get some help. And so the older guy invited him over to his place and said, I'll, I'll help you out, but you have to help me out too. So he said, here. And he gave him some buffing pads and said, wax my car. And he gave him some sanders and he said, sand my deck. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? It's the karate kid, right? Daniel-san is doing paint the fence, sand the floor, wax on, wax off, right? You guys know that? Now, we all have the benefit of hindsight knowing how that scene turns out, but do you remember the first time you ever saw Karate Kid? Because I don't really remember. I think I was probably 10 or so when the first time I saw it, but, um, but uh, it definitely strikes home the, this process of transformation because you think, and Daniel thinks, why am I over here just working my tail off for this guy? And he's not helping me out at all. He's just teaching me how to sand a floor and paint a fence and wax a car. Like, I'm just over here basically being a slave for no apparent reason. So at the very end of the, the evening, he gets fed up, and he can hardly move his arms because he's so sore and tired from all the work he's been doing. And he just starts hollering at Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi uh, is kind of stoic. And so Daniel turns around and gets ready to storm off. And he says, Daniel, son. And Daniel turns around and says, what? And Mr. Miyagi says, show me, wax on, wax off. So he goes, okay, no, 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 no. Wax on, wax off. And then he throws a punch at Daniel, right at his face. And Daniel, out of instinct, of reflex, blocks it. He 
wax on, wax off. Then he says, show me, paint the fence. Boom, boom, right? And he throws a punch and it blocks it. And he throws a punch. He says, he says show me, stay on the floor. He does this and he blocks a kick from Mr. Miyagi. And then he throws a flurry of, of attacks at him and he blocks all of them. And Daniel realizes that this whole time he thinks he's been doing manual labor for no good reason. And what he's actually been doing is bit by bit, transforming from a person who couldn't defend themselves into someone now who just defended against multiple blows from an experienced karate expert, right? And he realizes this whole time he's been learning the necessary muscle memory to do karate, right? He, he's learning the motions and the muscle memory in his arms and in his legs and also in his mind. He's developing the mentality required to defend himself as well as the muscle memory as well. I think this is kind of the way that God helps us to be transformed. He doesn't take us and just overnight change us. What he gives us is a thousand small opportunities to exercise and develop muscle memory and mentality shift so that we can become more in the image of Christ. This process of transformation takes place over a long time, and it happens in worship. Because that's exactly what worship does. It transforms us into what God desires us to be. When we first enter the doors of a church for the very first time in our lives, whether we be an infant or whether we be a, a 60-year-old, 70-year-old person, the first time we walk in, we're one way. A life of transformation then becurs. We call this the, 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 the process of discipleship, where we grow to be more like Christ. But it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't even really happen in its totality until the, the last day, but we see ourselves growing in our imitation of Christ by living actively in our worship, being here on Sundays, carrying the message and the gifts and the, and the, and the lessons that we learn out into the world and applying them to our daily living. That's how we grow to be more like Christ. So what's an example of this from the Bible? Well, Paul the guy who wrote our book to the Romans is definitely a very good example of that. Paul knows transformation more than just about anyone. Now, whereas we get these little, you know, small teeny chisel marks, Paul truly had one of those overnight transformations. Over here, he is a persecutor of Christians and a murderer. To now, he's a champion of the Christian movement and a missionary overnight. I would not highly recommend this type of transformation because it is violent. He's struck blind by a blinding light on the road where Christ basically yells at him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And because of this transformation, Paul comes out the other side changed. But it is not an easy process, this sudden and instantaneous transformation. But Paul here writes, to us, the church, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a guy who knows what it's like to have your mind changed. A guy who knows what it's like to transform from being one thing to being another thing. He knows that God is the only one who can do this type of transformation. That's why he says, be transformed by God, by his renewing of your mind. This process of worship is how we are called to do it. Let's go on to the last item. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
So we've talked about how we are rejecting the conforming of, our, of, our, of ourselves to the worldly pattern and how we are being transformed into a new way. And now that we've been transformed into a new way, we can start to see out ahead of us the paths that lie ahead. And we can look behind at how God has blessed us, how he has transformed us, and we can heed his word. We can join in with our brothers and sisters in Christ in worship, and we can begin to see the patterns of God and how he operates. So that way, when we look forward, we also see what his will dictates for our future. We can see the paths he would have us to take according to his will. We can lay down our own desires at the foot of the altar and say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And this is what it truly means to be a, a, a living sacrifice, right? Is through this process of transformation, you get to a place where you can say, not my will, but yours be done. And we can begin to understand God's will. And we can begin to discern and make wise decisions that honor him rather than our own desires. So let's talk about how we do that in worship. Well, worship is the place where you come and the place that you go out into the world to learn what God's will is. Because God reveals his will to you through his word, through preaching, through songs, through interactions with brothers and sisters and neighbors out in the world. That's how God's will is revealed to us. And he uses those opportunities to help us to grow and to learn and to improve the path that we walk with him. And so let's talk about a person who does this very well. Moses. In the beginning of Moses' story, he's not exactly the most flattering biblical character, right? He's a murderer, for one thing. He kills a guy. And then he runs away in shame. And God calls him through the burning bush to join and go and call the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And his response is, you got the wrong guy. I'm just not it, Lord. I, I wasn't, it's not my passion. I don't have an interest in this at all. I think, I think you should probably go see and find someone else who's got a better skill set for this kind of work. And he's saying this to God who created him and gave him the skill set that he has, the same God who's calling him to lead the people out of Egypt. And so God just shuts him down and says, I created you and I've got your back. So not a great place to start from for Moses, but through this process of transformation that he has over many years, seeing God at work, being able to identify what God is doing, he begins to seek after God. He begins to see the path ahead and know what God's wisdom dictates. He goes up onto the mountain and receives the words of God, the, the law of God, his commandments given. And, and given to him for all of the people. And he takes this and he says, this is a, a guide for how you should live your life. That you can look out ahead of you in your life and know what is the right thing that is the wise thing to honor God and do his will. And so we, like Moses, can do the same thing. We've seen God at work in our lives. We've seen his transformative power. And now, when we get to those moments in life where we have to make decisions, where our conscience is crying out to us to choose A over B, we know what God's will is. And Paul is telling us 
that this is the, the true nature of being a living sacrifice. So that we don't conform ourselves to the world, so that we don't uh, so that we do allow ourselves to be transformed by Almighty God, by the renewing of our mind, that we may know God's will and walk according to his ways. So in the end, I guess in summary, this is what I would do, is go back to verse 1 one more time and read, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So if we want to worship properly and in the truth, this is what it looks like. True and proper worship is when we offer our lives as servants or as sacrifices to God's will each and every day. Today in worship, but also tomorrow in worship. Monday through Saturday in the world. As we worship by what we do, what we say, how we act, and as we find ourselves set apart God. And so that is true worship, to give yourselves as a living sacrifice. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness in revealing your will today to us. Thank you for your servant Paul, who writes to tell us of the patterns of this world which we so often fall prey to, that we would reject them that we would turn instead to your way, and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, I pray that you would help us also to see your will and to walk on the paths that you have chosen as we wisely and with discernment choose how to to go about our lives. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who has been with us today and pray that you would continue to guide us as we go out into the world, as we worship in our daily living. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.